0: A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastacks is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastack's Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. Eyes glazed over from debugging a remote Kubernetes service? Instead, run your service locally in your favorite debugger and instantly find the problem. Ambassador Telepresence is the easiest way to debug microservices on Kubernetes. Spend more time fixing problems instead of reproducing them. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. Educative.io is a hands-on learning platform for software developers. Learn anything from Rust to system design without the hassle of setup or videos. Text-based courses let you easily skim back and forth like a book, while cloud-based developer environments let you get your hands dirty without fiddling with an IDE. Take your skills to the next level. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off an annual subscription. Get ready to level up at New Relic's virtual event, FutureStack 2021, held May 25th through the 27th. Join your fellow data nerds from around the world to learn, inspire, and rack up experience in 50 interactive sessions, 12 hands-on labs, and a 24-hour hackathon. FutureStack is your cheat code for observability. Engineers from across the industry will lead you through topics like Kubernetes, DevOps strategies, and observability. Then join us to relax with some Minecraft on Nerd Island. Registration is free at futurestack.com. Game on.
1: And it looked like he had posted, you know, some content about something that had happened at the conference. But then the image that was placed with the post was <laughs> like a man shirtless with an anonymous mask on, <laughs> like taking a mirror selfie. Oh. <laughs>
0: Welcome to DevDiscuss, the show where we cover the burning topics that impact all our lives as developers. I'm Ben Halpern, a co-founder of Forum.
2: And I'm Jess Lee, also a co-founder of Forum. Today we're talking about SRE with Logan McDonald, Senior Site Reliability Engineer at BuzzFeed, and Molly Struby, Lead Site Reliability Engineer at Forum.
0: So you might have noticed that we introduced ourselves as co-founders of Forum, where we used to say co-founders at Dev. And that's not to say that we've changed organizations or anything, Dev is still alive and well, but we announced recently that the underlying software that powers Dev is called Forum. That's spelled F-O-R-E-M and it stands for the phrase for empowering community. And we are in the transition of migrating our organization identity to be Forum instead of Dev, with Dev continuing to be you know, a central, critical, important thing. Our relationship with the whole dev community is really fundamental to building Forum. But Forum is software that's going to power Dev. It's going to power other communities. It already is, to some extent, it's open source. And we've been working on it for years as the underlying technology of Dev. And so, yeah, we have to make that transition eventually because we see our fundamental work as building Forum. So yeah, we're going to be introducing ourselves as co-founders of Forum now.
2: And before we get into our roundtable discussion, let's talk a little bit about why we chose to do this episode topic.
0: Yeah, so one of our guests today is our own Molly Struvey, and she is our lead site reliability engineer. And to me, site reliability is the stuff I no longer have to stress about 100% of the time. And that's really what having an SRE team is about as... (laughs) A founder from my perspective. I feel like this is the stuff that used to really, really be on my mind all the time. And not that it's been thrown over the fence, but I think that's what SREs are there to do, to support the organizational needs and, and really be those engineers who drive a more enjoyable, focused, reliable software team.
2: At what point did you feel like we needed to bring on Molly?
0: I think there was a time where there was a shift from, you know, problems that our team knew exactly how to handle and maybe they were difficult or we had prioritization issues or anything. There's Sometimes those known problems that you can't immediately solve, but then there's sometimes when you get to the point where a little bit more expertise, a little bit more having been there, done that is really what you need to unlock productivity and growth and sanity of the organization. And Molly brought the right amount of all of that stuff and essentially was there to also teach us what site reliability meant. The first developers on any team are typically going to be, you know, generalists. And that's what we were. And that's what we still mostly are. But we hit a point in time where there was only so much we could gain from our total generalist mentality.
2: Yeah. And I'm really excited about this conversation because you know, Molly is uh, one woman SRE team here at Forum, whereas Logan works on an entire team with fellow SREs for, for a really big company, BuzzFeed. So I'm curious um, how their experiences differ and what sort of advice they'll have for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And now here with us is Logan McDonald and Molly Struve. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Before we get into SRE, can you tell us a little bit about your background as engineers? Logan, let's have you start.
1: I started out on my engineering journey right after college. In college, I actually didn't study computer science, and I hopped around a lot, but ended up studying economics. Sort of in my last year, I, I really got into like the statistical side of programming in my economics degree, and I really wanted to learn to program. So I literally just Googled like, how do you learn to program like programming groups <laughs> uh, in Seattle where I was at the time? I was particularly interested in like gender diverse groups and groups that focused on women in engineering. And I found this program that is like exactly that, called Ada Developers Academy, which is a one-year program that has an apprenticeship built into it for seven months, where it's just like an educational program to learn to code, and then you try to specialize in your apprenticeship in some area. And so I was um, really lucky and got into that program and learned how to code for the first six months. And then... Did my apprenticeship at a company called Chef Software, which makes different software for configuration management and uh, like continuous delivery. And after that, I became an operations engineer. I worked for a couple of years at Kickstarter. And then I went on to become a site reliability engineer where I currently work, which is at BuzzFeed. Um, so a little bit of a winding road. Uh, and I can talk a little bit more in the discussion about kind of how I landed on operations and SRE coming from only like a coding background um but yeah that's a little bit of my journey tell us more about your current role at buzzfeed yeah so i am a site reliability engineer definitions of what that actually means Uh, but to me it means i'm a software engineer that's focused on reliability so i focus on limiting the toil and struggle of our developers And I do that mainly through release engineering, but there's a mix of other parts of the role, like some infosec, some, you know, just like developer productivity, some production engineering, but overall kind of fits under the umbrella of reliability. And I, I, yeah, I work at BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed's a a media company that covers quite a few different verticals. We have BuzzFeed News, BuzzFeed.com, tasty, nifty. Um, We have tons of sites and it's a a giant microservice architecture underneath about almost 600 different microservices. So our team, which is core infrastructure, manages the platform that all of those services sit on top of from development all the way to
0: production. And Molly, why don't you tell us a bit about your background?
3: Similar to Logan, I did not study computer science when I was in college. I actually studied aerospace engineering because at the time planes seemed really cool to me. So I ended up getting a degree in that and then actually went into options trading for a couple of years. And during that time, the market was pretty much in turmoil. And at the same time, Silicon Valley was really kind of hitting its stride. And you had all these exciting companies like Instagram and Facebook really just starting to you know, take hold and start to shape the landscape of the internet and me being in options trading and just not, you know, not really feeling it, kind of looked at that and said, "Huh. I think it'd be really cool to kind of get back to my engineering roots and and go back to building stuff." So, I quit my job as a trader in 2013 and similar to Logan, literally googled you know, how to start web development, how to start learning to code. I had coded in college, but it was, you know, kind of back-end Java stuff. So nothing to really do with web development. And in my searches, I found the Michael Hardell tutorial on how to build basically a Twitter app. And I taught myself Ruby on Rails through going through that tutorial and ended up landing a job as an intern at a tiny little startup and kind of the rest was history after that in terms of getting into sre work i from the beginning was a kind of a full stack engineer learned the front end the back end but while i was at one of my companies that i worked for a large security firm i kind of took a hold and took ownership over one of our large data stores called Elasticsearch. And as I kind of took ownership over that, I really kind of honed my skills and became an expert in it. And so when the company started growing and needed to split up the developer teams, it was kind of a natural fit that I moved into the site reliability land from there, since I was already so involved in our data stores and in their resiliency and reliability.
2: And now that you're at Forum, can you share what you're doing for us as a Site Reliability Engineer?
3: Yeah, so since joining Forum, I've done a lot of work to really take us off of, you know, kind of paid niche services and onto more open source platforms and data stores such as Elasticsearch and Redis. And it's just kind of another way that our platform continues to maintain its open source values in the fact that we're using, you know, these kind of data stores that are run by code that is also open source. So, been doing a lot of work on that and then most recently as we have started transitioning to this forum brand, our ideals have really shifted to not just supporting this single dev community, but supporting many communities all over the place and for all different types of communities. And so now my job has shifted to just making sure that dev is reliable and instead now kind of ensuring the reliability of all these new forums that we're building. And what that really starts with is designing a system and an infrastructure that is gonna be not only scalable, but also easily reproducible many times so that we can spin up many, many communities and be able to help run them and ensure that they're all as reliable as the next one.
2: So Logan kind of touched on this earlier that SRE can mean many different things to different people. So I'm curious what your definition of SRE is.
3: My definition actually 100% lines up with Logan's. I totally agree that site reliability engineers are software engineers, but with a focus on reliability. And another kind of attribute that I think a lot of site reliability engineers have is they have this innate ability to kind of step back from just the code and look at the overall system and think about how a single piece of code affects that overall system from everything from the front end to the back end data stores to the servers that The code is running on. So I think that's another kind of key piece in being an SRE is being able to really grasp the large picture and make sure that everything, whether it's new code, whether it's a new data store, kind of fits nicely and securely into that big picture.
1: I completely agree with that. And it's part of what really drew me to this particular field You know, I think both of us come from an interdisciplinary background and SRE is inherently so interdisciplinary. It covers so many different types of engineering and really requires people who are systems thinkers. Yeah. So I just want to say I completely agree with that.
0: Yeah. And and site reliability has to enter the picture at really varying levels of the stack. So how do you Ultimately, communicate with the different stakeholders in the organization, being the system side or the front end engineers or the architects. What are some of the sort of key concerns that go into ensuring folks are working collaboratively in order to reach a certain state of adequate reliability? Logan, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it in the context of BuzzFeed now, which has a model that I really like. So I mentioned at the beginning that we have a pretty large microservice architecture. So like 600 services that are split across, you know, a team of probably around 100 engineers, and so organizing those services and understanding like one service may be some Slack bot job that some engineer created that if it goes offline is not that important. The other is like our Buzz API, which powers all buzzes across the site what we kind of call like article components and if the buzz API goes down that's a way bigger deal than if there are issues with that tiny slack bot so we have a pretty powerful platform as a service that our you know platform and infrastructure teams manage we call it rig and it is a sort of automated, release system for all of these services that has configuration available to tell whether a service is in, you know, a top tier or maybe a lower tier that needs less assistance. But that's only one sort of guardrail around this platform that we put in place. The way that we develop these services and how we configure them develops tons of guardrails from like how many resources can be provisioned for a given service to who owns that service, to what port is that, you know, if it's an HTTP service, what port is that service being made available? And all of this is very standardized and configured. And a big part of our job is operating that platform and watching out for possible things that developers might, you know, want to change to make it like flexible enough that they can adequately do their jobs and don't have to come to us every time they need a new database they need to change some bit of the configuration they need an authentication proxy but they also don't do things that will accidentally hurt themselves and hurt the ecosystem as a whole so it's like kind of always that balance you don't want to be a gatekeeper But you do want to have guardrails in place so that the system remains safe enough that you feel really good about being on call for it and supporting it.
2: How was this different from when you were working at a smaller startup?
1: That's a really good question. And I, I wanted to say like a little bit to the SRE definition. I think a big contributing factor when you're thinking about SRE is scale. And there are some people out there who will be like, if you're not working at Google or a similarly sized company, you know, you're not really an SRE, which is like very de- debatable. But yeah, I think that the scale is really different. Once you reach a certain like level of system complexity and like incident management, really, there's so much toil in that system that needs to be handled and automated. And I think an SRE is a really good role to place in there. But like my previous job, a team of like four for the platform and operations team in total, we were doing lots of stuff that probably could be classified at certain companies as just backend engineering, less platform concentrated work. A lot of the time we were like directly on production boxes, which is not something I really do in my job now because we've reached like a level of abstraction and a level of tooling that makes that not necessary. And then all the way down, like I've talked to SREs at companies that are really small and just starting out that would maybe even classify some of the work as like IT, like they're setting up, you know, certain systems that are kind of like purely IT systems. So it's really a range of things. And even in my current role, a lot of the time, the stuff I'm doing, I wouldn't really say is SRE work. But it goes back to you know our conversations. It's very interdisciplinary, and you wear a lot of hats in the role.
3: I've definitely heard people say, "Oh, you know, you're not really an SRE unless you're at a giant company like a Google." And I think because kind of Google wrote the handbook on being an SRE, there's this kind of stigma that you have to be, you know, a certain size, have X number of engineers, be running X servers before you can have an SRE team and that is something i personally disagree with it's never too early to start thinking like an sre and in the beginning you know like logan said you might not just be doing sre things you might be a back end developer or a full stack developer but you have that sre mindset so that you can kind of look into the future and determine what your decisions you're making now, how they're going to affect things in the future. And I think it's it's never too early at a company to have that mindset so that you can kind of get ahead of those scaling issues before they pop up. And that's going to save you a lot of time and energy down the road because no one likes hitting those scaling issues. And then you're you know you're running around putting out all of these fires. If you can kind of get ahead of those early on, I think that's a huge win, no matter how small a company is.
1: I think that like lots of companies who don't do that risk burning out their engineers. What they would rather do is just let everyone burn out rather than pay to to have an SRE do it like or, or even just allowing an SRE or an SRE team to build safer systems in this way.
0: Sick of your laptop overheating every time you try to run your Kubernetes application locally? With Ambassador Telepresence, you can intercept your services on your local machine so that you can develop on your services as if your laptop was running in the cluster. Never worry about running out of memory again, no matter how complex your Kubernetes application gets. Ambassador Telepresence is free to use for teams with unlimited developers. Get started today at getambassador.io slash devdiscuss. New Relic's application monitoring platform gives you detailed performance metrics for every aspect of your software environment. Manage application performance in real-time, troubleshoot problems in your stack, and move beyond traditional monitoring with New Relic 1, your complete software observability solution. Get started for free at developer.newrelic.com To connect with the team behind New Relic directly, join the Relicans. The Relicans is a new community hub designed to help developers create cool projects, inspire one another, level up, and learn in public. You can start a discussion about your favorite programming language, ask a question about software observability, share a tutorial, and lots more. Join today at theRelicans.com.
2: So Molly, you mentioned that Google like more or less invented the SRE role. And Logan, you mentioned that depending on the size of the company, some SREs can end up doing some more IT work or more backend work. Do either of you know what the history of site reliability is? How did this role come to be?
1: Basically, at Google, they had these huge server farms and they were having tons of incidents and the incidents were taking up a huge amount of time for like the engineering teams whose software was running on these servers and so they started investing in teams that would look at what was causing these high level of incidents and this like real like toil and labor from these teams to have to be on call all the time for this stuff and they took software engineers working in the org and put them on this team and they started to automate away some of the incidents like, you know, you find patterns If like an incident happened 10 times the same way every day, they started to automate away those incidents. And it, it became fewer and fewer incidents and more outliers. And then the outliers sort of became what we kind of think of now as incident management, as like, how do you deal with unknown unknowns and like freak black swan sort of situations. And so they started to develop this hierarchy, which is in the book, it was developed by Paul Dickerson, who was a site reliability engineer at Google of like all the way down to the code. So at the very top would be like the code that your engineers are writing. And then it sits in this pyramid of all of these principles of site reliability engineering, which are monitoring, root cause analysis, capacity planning. And I think that there are a couple more. From that, they built out what is the book now in this kind of way of thinking. But because these people were originally software engineers, they approached it in a very like automate my problems way mindset. And that I think became like a big tenant of what we think of as SRE today. You're always trying to find patterns. And when you find patterns and problems, you automate them away. You're trying to make things more observable. You're trying to have less incidents and you're trying to keep your developers happy. What is a black
2: swan incident?
1: So black swan theory, black swan event is a metaphor that describes an event that comes as a surprise, uh, having a major effect, and is often inappropriately rationalized after the fact with the benefit of hindsight. So there's this really great talk on this, What Breaks Our Systems, A Taxonomy of Black Swan Events by Laura Nolan. Some examples that she talks about in this talk are like, you know, you have a highly automated system that has triggered events, right? Like something happens, it triggers something else, but it can cascade down and something completely unforeseen happens and it starts triggering all of these failovers and events. Like if this database goes down in this region, that's going to trigger all of these deployments, but those deploy events depend on this other part of the system working and it doesn't actually work. And then it just is catastrophe. (laughs) It's like one of those... (laughs) 24 hour long incidents, but you just never saw it coming. Right. So a lot of SRE is once you've like figured out all the things that are probably going to go wrong and you automate checks for all that stuff, you still have this possibility of these black swan events. And so how you handle and react to them is a big part of the job as well.
2: So SRE seems like one of the more inherently stressful development positions, you know, from lots of preparation to when you're stuck in the middle of a black swan event. And you need to just be executing and fixing things. Um, how do you manage the pressure?
3: So I personally am someone who kind of thrives on pressure. I'm a very competitive person, and and when my adrenaline gets going, that's kind of when I perform my best, and that makes it exciting for me. So. Obviously, you don't want those events to happen too often because that is what leads to burnout. But I think, you know, part of what helps me enjoy the SRE position is having some of those events come up and you kind of get a little bit of excitement. It kind of just, you know, kind of mixes up your day as opposed to you start work, you develop some things, you write some code, you commit the code and you go home at the end of the day. As an SRE, you you have this kind of unknown every single day that you kind of have to watch out for. And I think that's what makes, at least for me, the job exciting. And I really love just knowing after being in this position for a while, I know that at the end of an incident, at the end of some outage, we're going to learn something and then we're going to make our system better. That is something that has kept me really kind of hooked on SRE is is the constant learning the constant ability to continue to make systems better and then seeing those changes you know really pay off and then protect the system's reliability in the future that's you know that that feedback loop is really kind of what keeps me hooked on SRE
1: to speak to the adrenaline thing i think that like when when i see an incident happening i don't immediately know why it kind of like makes me excited rather than scared because I get to like <laughs> investigate something and maybe annoyance, but <laughs> never fear. But I think three things really help me to not get burnt out. The first is psychological safety. I work on a team and I would always choose to work on a team that. I 100% know if I'm the primary on call and I get paged and I let it slip to secondary because I don't know what's going on, that my secondary is not going to like wake up and be like, Logan, like, why did you wake me up? This is awful. Like they're going to be in it with me and they're not going to be mad that I didn't know what was going on and I needed help. So as a team, you just have to hire people and create a culture that is super safe and in which people are willing to admit when they don't know what's going on the second thing is and this is basically what molly was describing it's blamelessness which is kind of a cultural practice in devops in sre land, which does not mean i mean it means no blame that blame is unhelpful but it does not mean no accountability like if part of the problem was that I was super stressed out and didn't get a good night's sleep and slept through a page. Like that's something we should note, but not blame me for not waking up, blame like the system for not working. Like why was I burnt out? You don't believe that there's any use in pointing fingers at someone or one thing in particular in a complicated system. And finally, my organization made a really great choice about a year ago that if you got paged out of hours, when you were primary on call you got a half day off and you could use it whenever you wanted and then anyone who's primary on call for a week gets a day of paid time off whenever they want to take it and so really trying to mitigate burnout and leave time to recover because even if you know you get the adrenaline and you really like it it's still adrenaline and that chemical is not great for your body long term especially if it keeps happening so i think this really incentivizes the organization management to deal with repeat incidents because if someone is getting paged every single night then they're basically not working for half of the next week because they have all the paid time off and it also allows you to recover and rest if you got paged at 3 a.m and you're all out of sorts
0: so here's a scenario let's say the sites architect, maybe someone who doesn't work specifically in SRE or other parts of software development has the notion that in order to relieve stress on the back end, we are going to move more logic to the front end, like more stuff going on on the client in order to just have a reduction of total computing happening on the servers. That must be a scenario where the SRE maybe is relieved and that the server load will be reduced, but maybe stressed in that the amount of work going on in the client will will lead to more logical problems that are harder to observe. What would go through your head in that scenario, Molly, like just like outlining those different trade-offs and what you might do to prepare for such a change?
3: I definitely think in a situation, you know, such as rebalancing the load to to different areas of the app, that is when I would definitely, I'd be reaching out to those front end people, those people who are really versed in the client side code and really getting on the same page as, okay, how is this new load on the client going to, you know, affect the logic and, and how the client is performing? Do we need to worry about, you know, types of, you know, internet providers. And in, in that case, are there other things we need to worry about? And that's, that's something where I really kind of find the experts in that client side domain. And I really make sure that I work with them to, to understand how things are going to change and then figure out my strategy for staying on top of, of monitoring that code.
1: In some ways, I don't know how involved we would be. We may not even ever hear about it, but, <laughs> but uh, the only thing that like we we might hear about it from is like ma- making sure that all of our tooling is completely available to them, and you know something that we're kind of working on now because we are we're writing more services in Node. I'm sure some teams are making this transition, and we need to make sure that we have parity in Node for like step through debugging. For our logging packages and for metrics, and then just every service, you know kind of is set up for itself in terms of who they say is on call for it and what level of support it needs. And then every service that is you know tier one, if it has to be online all the time and it has ops support, has a run book. And we may help them with the construction of that run book and making sure whoever's on call if they get paged because of some latency or some issue with it knows exactly what to do and where to look. And that, again, comes back to the idea that Molly spoke to of observability and making sure that all of the packages are lined up so they can do what they need to do safely. <laughs>
0: Chances are, like other software developers, you learn better by doing than just watching. Unfortunately, most online learning platforms still have you passively sit through videos instead of actually getting your hands dirty. Educative.io is different. Their courses are interactive and hands-on with live coding environments inside your browser so you can practice as you go. They are also text-based, meaning you can skim back and forth like a book to the parts you're interested in. Step up your learning in 2021. Visit educative.io slash devdiscuss today to get a free preview and 10% off of an annual subscription. A common scene in technology companies everywhere. Big conference table with the CTO on one end, developer teams on the other, the showdown. We have an idea, will it get funded? More companies are feeling the pressure to go faster and stay ahead of the competition. Projects that have long timelines or no immediate impact are hard to justify. Datastacks is sponsoring a contest with real projects, real money, and real CTOs. If you have a Kubernetes project that needs a database, the winner will get funded with a free year of Datastacks Astra. Follow the link in the podcast description to submit your project. It's time to impress the CTO and get your project funded. How about some... Horror stories as we get into the end of the show. Logan, can you let us know about a, about an incident that was uh, particularly painful and you know some of the aftermath what you learned, et cetera?
1: Uh, yeah, this this one is not like specifically classic infrastructure capacity planning, but it's something that sort of changed like meaning halfway through. So I was maybe three months into being at BuzzFeed. And was called on to an incident. We had, this was with our news team. We had some reporters who were at an Apple conference and they were live blogging new product releases and stuff. And they had kind of shoddy Wi Fi because they were in this big conference center with a bunch of other reporters trying to, you know, say this iPhone launched or whatever. And one of them constructed a post in our CMS went to publish, lost his Wi-Fi, then it came back online and the requests had processed. And then he kind of ignored it for a little bit, but then started getting pings on the page because there was something really weird going on with the post. And it looked like he had posted, you know, some content about something that happened at the conference. But then the image that was placed with the post was, Like a man shirtless with an anonymous mask on, (laughs) like taking a mirror selfie, (laughs) and so he immediately starts freaking out. He's like, "We've been hacked! Like someone is like found some vulnerability where they can like change our images in our CMS. It's a very complicated system." And so he pinged the you know the head of security for news, which they pinged us, and we opened an incident channel. And so we're going through all these things of like, where is some cross-site scripting bug that's allowing someone to insert these image links? We got so many people involved, like all the VPs, because, you know, if we did have like a hacking situation, that's really bad. And so one engineer was like poking around, like grabbed the image link and realized that it was being served from our own image store. Like it was our own S3 link. And so reverse image searched it in Google and found that it was attached to a BuzzFeed post from like 2011. That was like 15 sexy anonymous, <laughs> <laughs> like anonymous members or something like that. You know, we were, we were looking and found that in our CMS, there was this bug that if you lost connectivity and it couldn't upload the photo, it took a random Buzz ID (laughs) from our our database and populated it. And so we tried it a couple of times to reproduce it and we're getting like images of flowers and like random stuff. It just happened that everything aligned (laughs) that the random (laughs) idea chose made us all go in the absolute like wrong direction. And we probably wasted like 30 minutes getting way too many people involved because we thought we were hacked you know, and made all these assumptions about what was happening. So technically, this isn't like super interesting. And it's just a a minor bug, but kind of shows you in like the heat of the moment when you're just seeing symptoms that you like, it could could be something you totally don't think that that it is.
2: Molly, any horror stories from
3: your work? Oh, my. It's, you know, so so many good ones. I think the one that that sticks with me the most because it was kind of the, the biggest and longest running horror story I've ever had was at a previous company. And I kind of alluded to this incident earlier. We had our Elasticsearch data store, which was really the cornerstone of the entire platform. We were looking to do an upgrade on it. And the last upgrade we had done for Elasticsearch went swimmingly. It was great. We saw all these huge gains, like memory usage went down request speeds went up, it was, it was fantastic. So preparing for this, this next upgrade, we assumed it was gonna be just as great. So we, we got all the code working, we got everything ready. And when we flipped the switch and did the upgrade, it was a disaster. And our Elasticsearch became overloaded and we had all these problems. And kind of long story short, our entire app was basically down for a week as we were trying to figure out what was wrong. And it got so bad, we actually pulled in an Elasticsearch engineer who, lo and behold, in the end, found out that our problem wasn't on our end, but it was actually a bug within Elasticsearch. And so they actually had to push code, fix the bug, gave us a workaround in the meantime until they released that. And after about a week of just, 12, 15 hour plus days of working nonstop, we finally got this fixed. And it was one of those incidences that one really bonded our team together because after we kind of survived that, we realized, okay, we, we can really do anything. And I think it also opened up our eyes to the fact that no matter how widely used software is, all software can have bugs. Even massively used data store software like Elasticsearch, it can have bugs in it. And I think that really kind of opened up my eyes to, okay, no matter what kind of software you're using, you you really have to load test it and capacity test it and, and make sure that it can handle your use case because no matter how widely used it is, all software has bugs. And whether that bug might affect you or it might not affect you is, is something that you're kind of really responsible for in how you use that software. So in the heat of, of the moment, it was not the most glamorous incident, but we we learned so much. And I felt like that was one of really a defining incident for me in my SRE career in that I learned a lot and also you know, kind of in a backwards way, gained a lot of confidence from that incident. And okay, if I can survive this, I can kind of survive anything.
1: I think that Molly spoke something that is like, probably the most stressful thing for me, not like the incident itself, but making the call of whether to go backwards or keep going through it is really hard. And I've been a part of upgrades like that where first, like having a solid plan of how to go back is hard. <laughs> and sometimes yep. you just can't, you're just like, we're gonna do it. It's it's happening. And then it when you're in it, and you're like, we can get through this, but but everything is on fire. <laughs> and people are like, should we go back? Should we go back? And you're like, no, we're, we're gonna make it through. It's hard.
2: What is something that you wish that engineers knew about SRE that would help make your jobs easier?
3: I wish kind of just engineers knew this in general is that we don't have all the answers as an SRE. And our job is a constant iteration of, you know, seeing something break and then fixing the system to to make it more resilient. Sometimes SREs can be kind of elevated to this status of like this kind of this hero culture where you see an incident happen and you see the SRE team step in and they fix it and they solve it. And so sometimes that can kind of make that, oh, they just know how to deal with with anything. And I love trying to, you know, trying to debunk that myth and being like, we don't have all the answers. You know, half the time we're in there and we're just, we're sifting through logs, trying to figure out what's going on. We're we're just as clueless a lot of the time as as anyone else. And we just happen to, you know, go through the logs and break down the problem and, and use the tools we have in order to, to kind of get to the solution. But I think one thing devs can kind of do to help their SRE teams is, is have that little SRE mindset in the, in the back of your head. And it can be as simple as you're changing code that talks to the database and maybe pinging an SRE for a, a code review. Just because, you know, okay, this, I think this code's going to execute a lot. Like, let me just check in with the SRE team about this. I think just being thoughtful when you're committing code to make sure you're pulling in the right people. If you think, even if there's just a small chance that that code might affect systems in other ways.
1: I have just a super specific request, which is when you have a problem that you see in the logs or in your local environment, don't screenshot it. Like actually copy the full error oh and my put it God. In like a code yes. block <laughs> because my number one debugging tool is searching Slack for when this has previously happened and I can't search images. I can only search the text. Actually, I want to write a post about this for Dev, but like Slack dorking is like the number one skill I think <laughs> you could learn if you want to be an SRE or just a better software engineer because. It's like super powerful, their advanced search. Um, And you can find all sorts of problems that have occurred in the past, but I can't find them if you screenshot the error.
3: Oh my, I've had this issue so many times, but not quite enough to like really stop and think about it. But now that you mention it, if you write a post on that, let me know. I'd be happy to contribute to it because that is also <laughs> when I get a screenshot and then I think to myself, oh my Lord, I have to write out everything that's in this air into, you know, Slack or into Google now.
0: Helping people who are trying to help you is probably one of the more fundamental things you can do. Like <laughs> You know, make make people's jobs as easy as possible. Give them the context, give them the, the text, to help the universe by putting out text into the world that's searchable in the future
1: yeah or if you just get a screenshot and it just says error in like big <laughs> 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 just like i don't know what this is
2: logan molly thank you both so much for joining us today
1: thanks for yeah, having me. thank us. you this was fun
2: i want to thank everyone who sent in responses for all of you listening please be on the lookout for our next question We'd especially love it if you would dial into our google voice the number is international code 1 929-500-1513 or you can email us a voice memo so we can hear your responses in your own beautiful voices this show is produced and mixed by levi sharp editorial oversight by peter frank and saran yabarak our theme song is by slow biz if you have any questions or comments please email pod at dev.to And make sure to join our Dev Discuss Twitter chats on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or if you want to start your own discussion, write a post on Dev using the hashtag Discuss. Please rate and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts.